Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Beyond the Optics podcast with your host Tulip Nandu. I'm a computational biologist at UT Southwestern Medical Center, an avid traveler, a blogger, and now a podcast host. Similar to my role as a researcher, which expects me to take an in-depth look at the projects I'm working on, I'm also curious to go beyond the optics for everything that is happening around and to leverage that knowledge to challenge the status quo and think from a different perspective. This podcast is an attempt by me to put the information out there and spark a curiosity amongst the listeners to go beyond the optics and not take the material they are fed at face value. We shall continue with the series on evolution of money, monetary theory and the implications of government regulations causing the frailty in economy we have faced in the last century. In today's episode we shall continue our discussion with Professor Lewin on how government got involved to ascertain its control on the flow of money in the economy. Before we go ahead I highly recommend everyone to listen to the episode on the evolution of money in which Professor Lewin goes into explaining how money took the current form of bills, notes and bonds from the barter era and in turn became a social institution to give you a better understanding and a continuity on the money trail. Yeah. and that that's a good way of, of you know people understanding the advent of so called money that we call in in today's terms definitely so as you mentioned like there was nothing related to government before and problems start when when government starts getting involved and putting a so called trademark on all of these so just for the simplicity if you can explain the advent of the monetary and the fiscal policies or how did it all come together and the government regulations started all these things yeah it's again that is also no governments get involved well let's think about the idea of you know for most of human history human beings lived in circumstances that most of us living in the industrial world of today would regard as very very poor circumstances even the most wealthy of people living in those worlds lived you know they lived without cell phones they lived without automobiles they lived without electricity they lived without running water they they lived the even the wealthiest king lived in existence that you and i would not like to trade even though we may not regard ourselves as particularly wealthy members of our society and people much poorer than us too would not trade for that so in those worlds you know the the existence there was a lot of trading particularly in the ancient empires you know in the roman empires the various chinese dynasties in the indian ancient civilization all, all that there was a lot of trading going on but it was by our circuit by standards quite local there was trading with china across the silk road it took months and years to get back and forth and it's it's all the way till about 1750 until we get this big great enrichment in those worlds governments were small but locally very powerful and whatever trading took place took tra- took place against the backdrop of a world that was much more dangerous than ours 
you know, there was a lot more predatory behavior. It's sort of natural that the people who evolved to become governments were those who were the most powerful. And, and then if, 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 for example, like in some of the ancient empires, some family became wealthy, maybe some individual, because a lot of, I mean, most of the trading was sort of international trading, and then they could become wealthy by luck or by great entrepreneurship or something, then wealth also went with power. So when money evolves like that, and, and there are wealthy individuals, and some of these wealthy individuals then become money lenders or money warehouses and then become banks, the ability to issue money is very profitable. I mean, think about if you have a gold mine, you know, it costs you money to get gold out of the ground, but then you can use that money to buy all sorts of things. Now, think about if instead of mining gold, you can just issue paper for the, for the gold that is deposited with you. And I know some people are thinking Bitcoin here, right? Then that, that's actually a source of profit. Modern central banks today who create banks are very profitable. That ability to issue money is lucrative. You can transfer resources to yourself. You can employ people to work for you by giving them the whatever. So what we get is a kind in one form or another is an alliance between wealthy, financially wealthy people and powerful people. Sometimes they're the same people. Yeah. And the, the, the government is the local warlord, right? And the thing is, you may be a money issue, but there may be other money issues in the region. And they're overlapping regions. It's in the nature of money that you cannot have too many different kinds of money in a particular region because of what they call network effects, okay? Everybody knows what a network is in the modern world. We have Facebook, social network. We have, you know, the word, the networks have always existed. The, the, the group of people in the world that speak English are part of a vast network of English speakers. <laughs> people on a telephone network, people on a Zoom network. There's a way of connecting. They sort of different nodes that are connected, right? Mm -hmm. A monetary network is that network of people that use money. So the benefit to the people to be in the network depends upon the number of other people in the network. Because if there's just one other person who accepts your money, well, that's useful. But it's not as useful as if there were 10 people who would accept your money. You can trade with 10 people. 100 people, even better. 1,000 people, even better. A million people, even better. So there are economies of scale in network effects in money, which means that, that when individuals accept it, acceptance grows because a condition for accepting money as money is its acceptance. So the more people accept it, the more people accept it. So that means <clears throat> that it's not advantageous for any money users for there to be too many money. Because I mean, in the extreme, if everything's money, nothing's money. It's just bought. So, you, so we imagine that, you know, of the many things that have served as money in the past, tobacco, seashells, cattle, cigarettes in the prisons, right? All kinds of ridiculous things have served as money. And, but at any one time, 
only a few of them, like in the United States at one time, it was bimetallic gold and silver. In much of our history, it was different kinds of precious metals at the same time. It's like in the world today, there are multiple international currencies. And if you have a choice, you will choose the one that you believe is the most stable in value. If you're traveling with it, if you're thinking about using it over time, then you will select the one that is most stable and reliable in that. So this competition in currency is what keeps inflation from breaking out. Because any currency that holds its value less than any other currency, people will stop using. And that's why during the free banking period in the United States and all other free banking periods, United States from about 1830 to 1864, there was no inflation. There were some bankruptcies of banks that were overregulated in the interior of the United States. But on the East Coast, when 90% of, 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 of transactions were taking place, there was no inflation because nobody would use a currency that was overissued. Banks issued their own notes. They were called dollars, but they were exchangeable 100% for gold. And they would meet once a week to clear the outstanding balances. And any bank that overissued its currency would be expelled from this clearing arrangement. <coughs> but government, uh, it, it, would be, it would be advantageous in the old world or in this world or whatever world, if you could outlaw your competitors, right? Anybody loves that. It's called monopoly. So if you don't, if the governments and money issuers realize that if they can use power to make sure that theirs is the only money that is available for people to use, they will have huge advantages. It's a massive increase in power if you are the only authority that issues money. So from a very early stage, in the history of humanity, with some exceptions during the free banking period, governments get involved in money and they declare only one money to be legal. And everything else is counterfeit on pain of criminal persecution, prosecution. And that's how governments got involved in money. Once governments monopolize money, they then are able to finance their expenditures by creating money. And that's the source of pretty much a lot of our modern problems. I have kept this episode deliberately short. So in the next episode, we can elaborate more on the current problems that we face with the rise of public and private debt and how the monetary and fiscal policies have landed us in a scoop. The final episode will connect all the episodes to give you a better understanding on evolution of money and how the involvement of government is one of the major cause of problems we face today. So I highly recommend to listen to the series chronologically and understand the concept and go beyond the optics. Thank you so much for staying till the end and listening to the podcast. I hope you have enjoyed as much as I have bringing it to you. Please share it with your family and friends 
who would want to use this information to challenge the status quo and think from a different perspective. For more bite-sized information, follow me on Twitter at TulipSNandu and to receive interesting take on current topics, subscribe to my newsletter at tulip.substack.com. Until next time, go beyond the optics, friends.